Uh, good morning. Uh, my name's Pastor Kyle. Uh, a while back, I, I had another sermon where we had to tackle a hard question, and what I did was I put Evan's contact information on the board for anybody who had any follow-up questions. And given the nature of the series, I thought that that might be unfair, and so I didn't do that today. But can I just start by being I'm just honest with you guys? Um, I'm coming up here this morning with like an immense amount of hesitation and fear. Um, like it's not lost on me just how broad a meaning of this morning's creed can have. And, and I'm not unaware of the passions and even uh, the opposing views that are present in this room. And in fact, I'm here this morning like hypersensitive to the reality of how deeply personal the subject of our discussion will be to many of us here. And so this morning, I'm, I'm coming with you with a fear that I may unintentionally offend some, uh, that the discussion may stir up past wounds for others. I'm fully aware that it's impossible a task to think that I can cover this issue in such a way that it would satisfy everyone who listens, let alone do it in the 30 minutes that I have. And so with it, I just ask you to be gracious to me and to seek to understand the heart behind everything that I'm about to say. And so I want you to know I spent an immense amount of time in preparation for this morning. Many hours were spent reading and listening and praying and contemplating and seeking to understand the issue at hand so that I could stand up here this morning and to speak to you only with the authority that God has entrusted to me such that I can speak as his representative with the explicit desire to preach his heart so that you can be better equipped to think about and engage with the matter and to do so with gospel-driven hearts and minds. So would you do that for me? Would you trust that my heart is for you? Would you give me your ear and your generosity as I seek to do my best to serve God and love you well? And so with that stage set, I thought this morning would be helpful to start off by giving you a framework for the time we have. Like I said before, this creed has become an umbrella for many different issues but with the overturning of uh, Roe versus Wade last year, I thought it would be important for us to discuss the creed of women's rights as human rights as it relates to reproductive rights and the issue of abortion. And so our outline for the day will be this. First, I'm going to give you a quick history of the creed and how it's um, been adopted by this movement. Um, second, I'll quickly answer probably the most obvious question you may be asking. A third, I want to shift us to what I think is a more important question of how do we as God's people engage with the subject in such a way that's God-honoring and reflective of the calling he's placed upon his people. And finally, to look at the example Christ himself has modeled for us for how to do that. And so first, we'll look at the history of this creed that women's rights are human rights. And so this creed finds its origins all the way back in the late 1830s. It was used by a group that's now referred to as the proto-feminists and also a group of abolitionists. And this phrase reemerged in the 1980s, but it gained its uh, cultural influence most prominently when used by Hillary Clinton in her 1995 speech given at a United Nations Human Rights Committee event. And so since that speech, this creed's been adopted and even adapted as a slogan and banner for issues related to the workplace, to sexuality, to gender norms, and most re uh, relevant to today, reproductive rights. And so in e each case, the goal of this movement was for women to be seen and given the rights that any of their male co counterparts would have. 
And so the goal is to be seen as full persons with the same dignity and value and to be treated as such. And most significantly, the reason that reproductive rights is a part of this agenda is because historically, this has actually been a right reserved for men. In fact, all the way back in pre-modern era, before Christ, um, we have the first recorded evidence of induced abortion. And within the laws pertaining to that, it was the men's decision if a pregnancy was continued or terminated. And according to some ancient law, women could be sentenced to death, not for having an abortion, but for having one against a husband's wishes. And so if we fast forward to Greco-Roman times, the law was much the same. During the first and second century, even infanticide, the killing of um, full-term, full-born babies, um, uh, that didn't become, that was a common practice for the first um, two, almost 300 years in Rome after Christ. But in the fourth century, uh, we have the first law against not abortion, but infanticide. So it wasn't until the 300s, the fourth century, that the first law that we can see against killing full-born babies came to pass. And it came to pass under um, the, the emperor Constantine, who was influenced by the church. And so just think about that for a moment. It was in the fourth century after Christ that the first law making it illegal to kill full-born children came to pass. And so from the fourth century on, abortion in Western culture became a debated issue in a way that it hadn't been before. And yet, even still, it wasn't until the 19th century that abortion laws became present themselves in a way that would be recognizable to us today. And so I give you all that history to put into context the reality that a child's right to live has been something that the world has debated or even denied for thousands of years. And so this issue is not new. But in many cases, this decision was turned into a right, not given to women or mothers, but to men. So the reason women see this as a right worth fighting for is because civilization has chosen to make it a right given to some and not to others. But for this morning, what we're asking is, how could this decision be viewed as a right at all? How is it that we live in a world in which preserving the life of a child can be viewed as a choice to begin with? And how can that choice be argued as a right for any man or woman to have? How has there been so much confusion on this subject for so long? And so as I saw the answer to that question, I found the work of a Dr. Willie Parker, um, and I disagreed with him on an immense amount of material. But he was able to help me understand where these debates truly hinged. And here's what I discovered. The issues surrounding the rights of any human being, male, female, of one ethnicity or another, of one age or another, born or unborn, comes down to our understanding of personhood. The issue at the core of women's reproductive rights, of any rights for that matter, hinges on how we define personhood and who has the right to define it. And see, once we get our minds around this, we can also understand how it is that we could strip the rights away from any person for any reason. So that the reason that, human rights were, that humans were able to justify owning other humans was because we didn't view them as full persons with the same value or rights that we ourselves possessed. 
The reason that children could be given as sacrifices to other gods in the day of Israel was because those children weren't viewed as full persons with the same rights to live as their parents. The reason that during the first and second century under Roman law, fathers had the right to reject or discard a child was because that born, full-term child wasn't yet viewed as a full person. And the reason that women have had to fight for their rights on many issues is because for years they were viewed as lesser, not partners, but property. And so personhood is at the core of this debate and creed. And once we see that, we can see the desire for women to be given all the rights they should have. When we understand the desire behind this creed is full personhood, dignity, and value, we can then begin to understand and engage in ways that can actually bring reform and transformation. So women's rights should be indistinguishable from human rights because both male and female, our brothers and sisters, are made by God in the image of God, full persons equally reflecting of God's nature. And if our desire is, transform, is to transform the thoughts and hearts of men and women who currently reject or deny the personhood of either women or children, we must first desire that they come to know the person of Jesus Christ. And so we have to understand this. When it comes to an issue like abortion, we enter a conversation that's all at once medical and legal and philosophical, cultural and religious. But listen, medicine is not equipped to answer the question of personhood. And according to the law, at this time, personhood doesn't begin until viability or birth. Within philosophy, there's an ever-growing diversity of thought on when and where personhood comes from. And in our current culture, the personhood of a child is a mother's decision. The world's definition of personhood as it relates to a child has been and is and will be ever-changing. And so it is that it's only in Christ that we find an objective standard for personhood. But apart from Christ, everything in the world points us away from that reality. So for the Christian, personhood is given by God to those who he has created. He imbues all of us with personhood as bearers of his image. And he does this before we're born, perhaps even before conception. And I'm fully convinced of this. Scripture attests to this. And a simple place we can see it is in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, where God says to Jeremiah, Before I formed you in the womb, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I sanctified you and I ordained you as a prophet to the nations. So the reason we in the church refuse to accept abortion as a right for women is because we believe that from conception, perhaps even before, God sees us as full people bearing his image and deserving of the most basic of human rights. And so I want to say that as clearly as I can, unapologetically, and with full confidence that I'm speaking with the authority of God. We within the church can take no other position on the ethics or morality of this matter because in passages like these, or those found in Psalm 139, or in Luke chapter 2, and really all over scripture, God is the one who creates life, and he's the one who defines and assigns personhood. And he does this for every human being that he has created. And so I hope that that's not a controversial statement for us in this room. 
but we must recognize that it is for those outside of God's family. Like we need to recognize that as we engage with the world, we, ha- we have to see just how reasonable it is that they can be so deceived on a subject as significant as this. We need to see that medicine, the law, philosophy, culture, all the tools at their disposal, all of them draw them towards a different conclusion. So we can't just expect them to see things our way when they can't see the very person who defines these for us. And so we need to have compassion and understanding. And we need to have hearts that say, Lord, forgive them. They know not what they do. Which brings us to the second question I want to tackle today. Given what we know abortion to truly be the termination of a child's life, how should we as God's people respond? And to answer this question, I think we should look at how God's people have responded to similar dilemmas at different times in their history. And and to do that, uh, very quickly, I want to look back again at the writings of the prophet Jeremiah and also to one of the apostles, Peter. And I want to do this because in them we find really how God expects us to interact and engage with his people in his nation, but also how he expects us to engage with the world as exiles outside of the land. So first, let me remind you again of Jeremiah 1.5, where God says he knew Jeremiah before he was even formed and appointed him as a prophet before. And second, let me point you to Jeremiah chapter 7, 30 through 31, where God's condemning his people for their treason and sins against his rule and law, even burning their children in worship to other gods. And through Jeremiah, God proclaims judgment on his people for their evil acts of injustice against God and his people, against the poor and the orphans, chapter 528, against women, children, and resident aliens, Jeremiah 22, 3. And in his judgment against his people in his nation, God uses Babylon, a wicked land, to punish the crimes of his people and cast them back into exile like he did from the garden for corrupting the place where God was meant to rule and dwell with his people as a holy nation and kingdom. And so here's what we learn from, first from Jeremiah, that when we live in God's kingdom, we're called to upload, uh, uphold his law. When we live in God's kingdom, we are called to uphold his law. This is important. And this is why in the church we have elders and deacons and we have membership and it's why we make covenants together to hold one another accountable in truth and love because as God's people within his kingdom family, we're called to a holy standard and called to defend it here. But when in exile, when outside of his land, what are we to do? What changes? For one thing, we must understand that we're no longer the governing authority. Instead, we're strangers and sojourners, guests, and as such, we can't expect native-born to change for us. They live under a different rule and law. And so as you read Jeremiah's letters to exiles, we see how they're called to live as God's representatives there. And so listen to what it says, chapter 29, verse 4 through 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I'm sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, 
take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As Jeremiah writes on behalf of God to his exiles, he instructs them to live as a people of peace who seek the welfare of the city. And as you continue to read throughout the letters, you'll find many instructions on how to continue to live in community with one another as God's people, holy and different from the nation around you. But in them, you will not find one command instructing his people to force our views on our captors. Instead, it's through our compassion that God's truth will come. And in the next chapters, primarily uh, chapter 30 through 34, God's exiles are given promised hope as God speaks to his people about the days to come. And with them, a new covenant and an eternal kingdom in such that God will bring justice, redemption, and salvation. So listen to this promise in Jeremiah 33, verse 14 through 16. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declare the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up from David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. God instructs his people in exile to continue to live as his people should, but to wait in hope for the coming king. And while we wait, we're not called to war with our neighbors over justice, but to pursue peace with them, to seek their welfare, and to trust God to be the Lord of righteousness and to bring justice. That's his job. Vengeance is his. And this call to exile is presented again in the New Testament as Peter writes to a people in a time, again, when women were often objectified, diminished, and when abortion, even infanticide, was common practice. And to these believers living in that nation, Peter says this, 1 Peter chapter 2, 16-24. Live as a people who are free not using freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In Jeremiah and in First Peter, we see that our calling is the same. 
live in the freedom that God has given, even in the midst of great injustice. But in these times, remember the Lord of righteousness is the king who reigns and who will judge justly. You know, Peter in his letter refers to Rome later as Babylon, reminding his readers that this is not their home. And so today, may I remind you that America, likewise, is not the land of the free, but the place of our exile and bondage. We are exiles waiting for the same king to return to redeem the land and rescue his people, to bring justice and righteousness. And we're called to bless and to seek the welfare of others, not so that they can see things our way and uphold God's law, but so that they can come to know the person of Jesus Christ and in him die to sins and live to righteousness. So listen, the only way the world will ever be able to see the full personhood of others is if they come to know the person of Jesus Christ. This is our mission and calling. And so hear me. By walking through some of the history of this creed, uh, the history of this issue, I hope that we can all see the reason there are groups that stand under the banner of this creed is because women's rights have not always been seen as human rights. And with it, I hope that I've been able to communicate to you just how complex and historically confused the world has been on the personhood of others, both women and children. And I want us to understand that it's not only through the recognition of who God is, or sorry, that it's only through the recognition of who God is that people will ever be able to see that he's the one who defines and assigns personhood to others. And I hope I've made it clear that God defines and attributes personhood to every human being before they're even formed, and he gives them the very image of God. And with that image comes a value and a dignity and a right to life. To say that even more clearly, the only person with the right to decide life or death is the God who creates it. So we must then be subject to his law and wisdom on when to fight to preserve or when to let go of the life of one that he's created. By looking at God's people in the past, I hope that I've shown you that when God's people are living in God's nation, there's a standard that all citizens should be held to. And there, God will bring justice to those who break his law. And by looking at times of exile, I hope that you can see exiles are guests and foreigners in another community. And while there, we're called to God's standards, but we also must trust God to be the arbiter of righteousness and justice to those outside of his kingdom family. We must trust that vengeance is his and that he will bring full justice in his timing. And through the prophets and the apostles, I hope to remind you, but also to call you to live as the exiles you're called to be, seeking the welfare of those around you, to bless them while submitting to the authorities that God's placed over us. Listen, even the unjust ones, to this we've been called. So liberty, we must recognize the world around us. It, it will never be transformed until God reveals himself. And we as his church are called to be the evidence of what happens when, a person, when the person of Christ is revealed. And we're called to be the testimony of the transformation that comes in such a way that others can see it and desire it for themselves. We have to see that it's only through seeing and believing into the person of Christ 
that anyone can see the personhood in others. So how do we do this? How do we bring people to see the person of Christ? First, if we want to wage war on any creed in our culture and to do so on Christ's behalf, we must use the weapons he used. To counter the creeds of his day, Jesus used a bowl and water, bread and wine, and to save lives, he laid down his own. Jesus came to this world not to condemn it, but to save it. And when he engaged with people outside the family of God, he treated them as full persons with dignity and value. And more, he offered them a path to freedom from condemnation and shame, not more of it. And so with the remainder of our time today, I just want us to consider the example he gave us as he engaged with a woman caught in a different but equally sinful trespass. And I want us to ask, is this how we engage with the issue of women's rights and reproductive rights? And so look with me again at John chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 2. It says, early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, This woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and he said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Jesus Christ, the same one who used his finger to write the Ten Commandments, Exodus thirty-one eighteen, is presented with a question of how to deal with one who breaks his law. In John chapter 8, I don't know what he wrote in the sand, but I do see how he dealt with this woman and with those who sought to condemn her and bring her to death. In John chapter 8, we see that he recognizes this woman and treats her with kindness and compassion, not shame and condemnation. And only after showing her the great value he placed on her life, defending her and offering her an alternative to her current circumstances, only then does he call her to live and walk in a new way. Church, the story, in this story, I don't think there's explanation that needs to be, um, there's just there's little explanation I think we need for the story. But it does need serious consideration. Like when it comes to the topic as serious as women's rights and reproductive rights, it's unquestionably a tragedy that we live in a nation and a time that's so deceived and confused, unable or unwilling to see the personhood and value of an unborn child but we have to recognize with humility that this is a sad reality 
and that has existed long before our time. Yet in each case, God calls us not to condemn the world, but to trust him to be their judge. We today must understand our calling to live as the exiles and holy priesthood we are, not to shame and condemn the women or the doctors who live in the darkness of this world, but to seek their welfare and blessing in such a way that they can see the light of the person of Christ in us. To this we have been called. And so listen, God will use many tools to bring about this revelation. We are blessed to live in a time and a country where we can have a voice and have a vote. Use them. We should be passionate about this issue. But church, we must make sure that in our passion we uphold both the position of God, but also that we do so in such a way that it reflects the person of God. And many times I fear we lose one for the other. You know, in Rome, when people were throwing away their unwanted children, the way transformation occurred was because the world saw Christians taking those children out of the trash and bringing them home, adopting them like the Father has done for us. The truth and transformation came not through knowledge or debate, but through with radical acts of love and kindness. Where is that today? It certainly exists, even here, but not enough. We cannot tell women in often desperate situations that God hates their choices or condemns their sins if they don't first know that he loves their person and offers forgiveness without condemnation first. Too many times we lose sight of the true calling on our lives when we get so passionate about defending God's law that we fail to reflect his person. And every time we do that, we carry his name in vain. Which, by the way, is another one of the big ten. Adultery is sin. One of the big ten. Murder is sin. One of the big ten. But so is taking the Lord's name in vain. And every time we condemn women outside of God's family without first offering them a way in, we bring shame upon the name of God, not glory. And that's something we need to repent of and repent of today. The creed women's rights or human rights exists because outside of God's kingdom, we're blind to the personhood of others. And in many cases, in many times, women have been stripped of their rights, their value, and their dignity. Reproductive rights has become an issue because for all of human history, cultures have decided that men only are the deciders on what lives have value and which don't. But today, I'm telling you that only God, the creator of life, has the authority to determine the value of another, and he gives all people full personhood as bearers of his image, and that starts before one is even formed in the womb. We as his representatives should never compromise on this conviction but we must respond to this tragedy with humility, trusting God to be the judge. When we live in a land where we are not the governing authority, in our exile we serve as God's ambassadors, not seeking to control culture, but to offer a counter to it. Not inviting more shame or condemnation, but offering a way out in the person of Jesus Christ. And the method of revealing the person of Christ to this world is by living as a people of peace, the way he modeled and commanded for us to be. 
We believe that women's rights are human rights, but we also believe that God is the one who decides what those rights are. And if we believe that he's the person with full authority, we too must submit to the life that he's called us to live and to counterculture only in the ways and with the tools in which he's ordained for us to do it. So the only way that women or children will ever be viewed as full persons in this world will be first by coming to recognize the full person of Jesus Christ. Our job is to lead others to him so that he can transform their hearts and minds. And the good news from the garden to the prophets, the gospels, apostles, has been that God has promised that those days are coming. Would we trust in the Lord of righteousness to be the bringer of justice? Would we be messengers of freedom, not carriers of condemnation? Would we do that this morning and live as a people wholly focused on our mission to invite others in, not cast them out? Let's pray.